Sometimes I wonder if we really understand how difficult it is to get to heaven. In fact, sometimes when I read the Bible, I'm amazed that anybody does get to heaven. When you stop and consider all the warnings that we are given in both Old and New Testaments about the dangers that surround us, the unholy trinity that is always operating against us, the world, the flesh, the devil, uh, it just reminds us that we always have enemies around us, we have enemies within us, we have enemies over us. And the scripture is filled with warnings in light of these enemies. We see it in the Old Testament with the warnings about false prophets. God's constantly warning his people not to be deceived by false prophets. There's a whole chapter, Deuteronomy 13, before Moses leads the people into the land of promise. He warns them about those who will come and will test them by doing things that make it look like they're legit, but in reality trying to lead people away from what God has already revealed. And he said they'll come to you with smooth words in the prophets themselves of the Old Testament, we hear these warnings as well. For example, in Jeremiah 9, 6, he says, false teachers will heap oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They will refuse to know the Lord. 23, 16, Jeremiah says, the Lord speaking through him, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus plainly wards about such false teachers in the Sermon on the Mount when he said they will come to you as wolves in sheep's clothing, inwardly seeking to destroy you. Psalms and Proverbs are filled with calls to be on our guard, particularly against those who would come to us with fine-sounding arguments and with smooth words. Paul warns about smooth talkers. In Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Peter says the devil walks around like a lion, prowling, seeking whom he may devour. So we must be sober-minded. We must be watchful. In 2 Peter 3.17, he admonishes us to take care that we're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose our own stability. In one of the most touching scenes in all the Bible, in Acts chapter 20, Luke recounts for us when Paul calls for the elders from Ephesus to meet him at Miletus. And if you think about it, these are men that Inevitably, Paul himself would have put into the office of the eldership, and he says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves, to the flock in which the Holy Spirit's made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. It's a church Paul planted, gave three years of his life to And he he knew somehow that this was going to happen. But then he goes on to say this. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Elders. That he knew. He probably appointed. And he's telling them from your own leadership, this is going to happen. Later in the last letter that we have from him, just a few months before he died, as Fred made 
clear in his earlier message from 2 Timothy 4. He tells Timothy that he must preach the word. And you remember why? Because the time's coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Turn away from, they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. Well, I could multiply these kind of passages, but I'm sure you know them as well as I do. My point is that we have in the Scripture confronting us, Scripture after Scripture after Scripture, warning us of the dangers that are around us, above us, within us, at every step of our spiritual journey. This world, indeed, is filled with devils, and they do indeed threaten to undo us. One of the reasons I love John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is because he has such a realistic understanding of the Christian life. He he says it's a dangerous journey. And he so graphically describes the dangers out there, over there, and in here. And he does so with a sense that if we're going to make it to the celestial city, we're going to need God's grace. We're going to need to take him at his word. We're going to need to be careful every step of the journey. I fear that today, however, much of the teaching that goes on in our own evangelical circles doesn't take seriously these warnings. And it's as if we think we're all okay because we have right doctrine, because we've been at this a while, because we are surrounded by people who are similar to us in our convictions, and we really don't think we need to beware. Well, that kind of complacency sets up modern evangelicals. To be played. What I mean by that is that we are in danger right now of having a very subtle, intentional, deadly maneuver played upon us by the devil and his evil forces. It's a maneuver that's designed to lead pastors and evangelical leaders and churches away from our allegiance to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the authority and sufficiency of his word. Theologian Kevin Van Hooser has wisely noted that pastors and churches today must brace ourselves for a particular kind of spiritual warfare, which he says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, matters in motion, but against isms, against the powers that seek to name and control reality. And that's precisely what I see going on today. I see godless ideologies that have spread throughout Western civilization over the last several decades with a vengeance and with an agenda to name and control reality. To tell us what we are supposed to be seeing and how we are supposed to be responding to that which they want to name and control for us. Demanding that we reorder our lives on the basis of this supposed reality and their instructions regarding it. In recent years, many of these ideologies have been smuggled into many evangelical churches and organizations through the Trojan horse of social justice. In the name of racial reconciliation, honoring women, and showing love and respect for the sexually confused, Evangelicals have welcomed into our midst ways of thinking that undermine the very teachings of God's word. 
teachings which if they are followed themselves do promote true love and true justice through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The devil has been very effective at confusing people about what constitutes real justice and what is involved in working for justice. And I think it's precisely at this point that we are being played. God is the only source of true justice. He is the righteous one who has created this world and he has defined justice for us in his word. Yet in the name of seeking justice, many evangelicals are being told what we must see in the world and how we must work for certain outcomes in the world based upon ideas and ideologies that are contrary to scripture. So again, I say we're being played. We're being manipulated. We're being deceived. Proponents of hollow and deceptive philosophies are telling us what we must see, think, and do if we're going to be faithful in pursuing justice in the church and the world. Well, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 is a passage where the Apostle Paul specifically warns us not to follow anyone who would deceive us in this way. We mustn't allow us allow it. I want us to look at this verse together this evening to try to understand what is going on and what we are to do about it. In the letter of Colossians, as you probably know, Paul begins with an introductory expression of thanksgiving and prayer for the church. Then in verse 15 of chapter 1, he launches into this magnificent expression of the supremacy of Christ. And starting in verse 24 of chapter 1, he begins to apply how the supremacy of Christ works in his own ministry as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our text is found in the midst of that explanation of his own ministry. As was read earlier, verses 6 and 7 give an admonition to us. And then verse 8 is the warning. And then verses 9 and 10 are encouragements to heed the warning. And I want to read those verses, 6 through 10, so that we can get the context of the verse we're going to focus on, verse 8. So follow along as I read aloud God's holy word. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. I like the way that J.B. Lightfoot renders verse 8. He puts it like this, Be on your guard. Do not suffer yourselves to fall prey to certain people who would lead you captive by a hollow and deceitful system, which they call philosophy. They substitute the traditions of men for the truth of God. They enforce an elementary discipline of mundane ordinances to fit, that fit or, they're fit only for children. Theirs is not the gospel of Christ. What Paul is telling us is that we must be so grounded in Jesus Christ and aware of who he is that we will be not tempted and not giving in to temptation for people to take us captive by these hollow, deceptive philosophies. He sticks with his theme of the greatness and supremacy of Christ as he admonishes us in verses 6 and 7 to walk in Christ. Just as we received him by faith, 
taking him at his word. So we are to live in him, being rooted, being built up, being established as we've been taught. And then in verse 8, he gives this warning not to be taken captive. Verses 9 and 10, he buttresses his argument. Look at this, by reminding us that in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells. And we've been filled in him. In other words, why in the world would you let anybody lead you astray once you have Christ? If you see Christ in the scripture and by faith lay hold of Christ, then anything that would begin to detract you away from Christ and satisfaction and contentment in him and confidence in him, we've got to be so prepared and grounded that they don't have an opportunity to distract us from the fullness of Christ. Well, verse 8 is the text I want to focus on. Paul admonishes us plainly to not let anyone take us captive. We see in this passage the goal of our spiritual enemies. They want to do just that. They want to come in and enslave us, captivate us. Paul uses a very rare word here. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament, and it's rarely used anywhere outside of the New Testament. It means to plunder, to take spoils after the victory of a battle. The term indicates that Paul sees this threat in terms of spiritual warfare. And he says, we must not let this happen. See to it. See to it. Be alert. Watch. Be on guard. This is what a lieutenant says to his platoon as they're going through enemy territory. Watch out. Be alert. He says we must take care that no one takes us captive. Now, he may have had specific people in Colossae in mind when he writes this. There may have been particular teachers that he was aware of who were propagating these deceptive philosophies. But ultimately, as we know, and as Paul reminds us, such teachers are always instruments of the devil. Whether wittingly or unwittingly, they are doing the devil's work. And the devil's desire is always to take people captive to do his will. Paul tells pastors specifically that we must deal gently but decisively with such people who have been taken captive to do his will in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. So the goal of spiritual enemies like this is to take us captive. What methods do they employ? Well, the methods are by philosophy and empty deceit. Now, I need to say that Paul here is not giving us a prohibition against all philosophy. Some people have taken that that way, and uh, you can read some interesting discussions about how philosophy is always of the devil, always evil. I don't think that's Paul's point at all, though this is the only time he uses the word, and so you don't get the impression that Paul is a great fan of philosophy. But nevertheless, what he's talking about here is a system of teaching that is not bad because it is a system of teaching, but it is a system of teaching that is used by spiritual enemies to capture God's people. He's saying there are ideas at play. He is talking about intellectual arguments. And specifically, he is pointing out the problem with a certain kind of philosophy, one that is empty deceit. The description that he employs here is tightly woven. There are three words, and they're all qualified by one definite 
article. So we could say the philosophy and empty deceit. So it's one idea, not three ideas. That's why I take what Paul says here to mean any hollow and deceptive philosophy. It's a way of thinking that when compared to what God has revealed is spiritually bankrupt. It's a way of thinking that is deceptive, which means it sounds impressive. It looks plausible, but in reality, it's deadly. Three sources of this hollow deceptive philosophy are identified. Each one of them is introduced by the same preposition, according to. Do you see that? According to, first, according to human tradition. Now again, Paul He's not putting down all tradition. He speaks of tradition favorably in other places like 2 Thessalonians 2.15. The problem with this tradition is it is merely human tradition. It is human tradition that is separated from God. It's not in keeping with, not consistent with that which God has revealed. This is precisely the problem that the Lord Jesus had with the Pharisees. He points out to them in Mark chapter 7, verses 6 and 7, when he quotes Isaiah 29, 13 about them. He says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You ought, you should, you must without divine authority. As the 17th century Huguenot pastor John Daly put it, teachings coming from mere human tradition are all of them nothing but folly and vanity in the sight of God. And though men boast of their utility, they are extremely hurtful as they pester consciences and busy them about, busy them about things which God has not ordained turning them aside from his pure service to things which do not profit. So according to these human traditions. Secondly, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now this is notoriously difficult passage or, or phrase to interpret. There have been three major kind of interpretations that people have settled around over history, uh, throughout history. One that is referring to the basic elements of the world like earth, wind, fire, water. Others, that is basic elements of a system, like the ABCs of a system. And a third is connected to supernatural beings, which was current in some Jewish thinking of the day. And that seems to be more plausible and fitting with Paul's argument here, dealing with spiritual warfare. But regardless of what the precise meaning of this phrase is, the real danger comes when we see what he says in this third description of the source of this philosophy. It's not according to Christ. It doesn't come from Christ. It's not revealed by God. It isn't compatible with the right understanding of the person and work of Christ. In other words, it's incompatible with the gospel that we are staking our lives on to save us eternally. Curtis Vaughn, my old Greek professor who's now with the Lord, puts it like this in his commentary. Christ is the pole star of theology, the standard by which all doctrine is to be measured. Any system, whatever its claims or pretensions, is to be rejected if it does not conform to the revelation which God has given us in him. And brothers and sisters, this is always the great danger that we face. That we will hear arguments, ideas, teachings, have practices set before us, 
that look good, sound plausible, might be pleasing in certain realms, but they do not comport with the revelation of God. And we must continually ask the question, where does this come from? What does the word say about this? This is a very concern that Paul expresses for the Corinthians as he warns them about false teachers in their midst in 2 Corinthians 11. Remember what he said? He talks about false Christs and false teachers of Christ, ministers of Christ. I'm afraid, he said, that just as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. We must work hard to be so grounded in Jesus Christ that nobody can take us captive by hollow, deceptive philosophy. Well, how can we do this? What can we do to guard ourselves from being taken captive in this way? Well, we need to have an unqualified, unwavering, unembarrassed submission to the full authority and sufficiency of God's holy word. And be willing to stand there no matter what comes, no matter what ridicule we receive, to stake our claim on what God has said and not be moved off of that no matter who it is that's trying to move us, no matter how fine their arguments might be, no matter how rarefied the air may be from which they speak. We must stake our claim on God's word. Let our cry be that of Isaiah 8.20, to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it's because there is no light in them. I believe that what Paul has written in Colossians 2.8 directly applies to what we are facing today with this so-called social justice movement. It is a movement that has its origins in the unbelieving world. And it's made rapid inroads at some points, very deep inroads into Christian churches and institutions. In fact, Colossians 2.8, in a significant sense, is the main, was a main impetus behind the statement on social justice and the gospel that was published last summer. I was involved in helping to craft that statement of 14 articles of affirmations and denials. And the first line of the introduction of the statement explains the concern of those who framed it, and presumably of the more than 11,000 people who have now signed it as well. The statement goes like this. In view of questionable sociological, psychological, and political theories presently permeating our culture and making inroads in Christ church, we wish to clarify certain key doctrines and ethical principles prescribed in God's word. Well, those questionable sociological, psychological, political theories need to be identified, and they need to be understood and kept in their proper places. And in the time that I have left, I would like to attempt to do just that. The worldview, which is driving the modern social justice movement, is at its heart antithetical to biblical Christianity. The worldview, at its heart, is opposed to what God has revealed. As a result, when Christians uncritically embrace and promote today's social justice movement, they're in danger of being taken captive by unbiblical ideologies and led away from Christ. Not because they embrace the good things that are being talked about in that movement, but because they're not being discerning to see where that movement has come from and what that movement is importing into their way of thinking and the way of living that they're being called to embrace. Professor Thaddeus Williams of Biola 
explains it this way. I appreciate his insight. He says, the problem is not with the quest for justice. The problem is what happens when that quest is undertaken from a framework that is not compatible with the Bible. And this is a very real problem. Because the extent to which we unwittingly allow unbiblical worldview assumptions to shape our approach to justice is the extent to which we are inadvertently hurting the very people we seek to help. This is precisely what I think is happening. And it's why I say that the reason I'm opposed to social justice is because I am for biblical justice. I really do want to see biblical justice prevail. And what's being sold to us under the guise of social justice will not deliver. I oppose the modern justice, social justice movement, not because I deny the existence of injustices that we face today, but because the proposals that come from that movement are based on dangerous ideologies that lead away from Jesus Christ and his gospel. So, what do we mean by social justice? That's one of the ongoing uh, criticisms that we receive, is you guys never defined it. <clears throat> well, there's a good reason for that, because it is almost impossible to define. It's a difficult term to define. I like what Antonio, Antonio Martino, an Italian economist and politician, has noted about this. He says, social justice owes its immense popularity precisely to its ambigu ambiguity and meaninglessness. It can be used by different people holding quite different views to designate a wide variety of different things. Its obvious appeal stems from its persuasive strength, from its positive connotations, which allows the user to praise his own ideas and simultaneously express contempt for the ideas of those who do not agree with him. And that's what we've seen go on. Luigi Taparelli was an Italian Jesuit priest who is given the designation of the first one to have used this term in modern history in the late 18th century. He did it to describe principles for a just society from a Catholic Jesuit perspective. Now, many, I dare say most who use the phrase today, are not thinking in terms of 18th, 19th century Roman Catholic social theory. I mean, most people have a far less sophisticated approach to the subject today. And what they usually mean by social justice is something like this, that laws and cultural practices, economic policies, and such should be fair. And they should be just. And that's not a bad thing. But you know what we got to do when somebody says that. Fair? Just? By what standard? Who gets to define fairness and justice? One of the standard college textbooks on the subject, Readings for Diversity and Social Justice, defines social justice this way as the elimination of all forms of social oppression. So where oppression exists, justice seeks to eliminate it. And that's a good thing, right? I mean, God calls us to stand against oppression. Isaiah 1.17, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause, Psalm 82.3. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. You see, it's precisely at this point that I think we're being played. Because the Bible admonishes us to do these very things, these Proponents of social justice come in and use that language, but they are speaking from a foundation that is not grounded in the word of God. 
And if we're not discerning, we recognize the obligation and we can be played into their agenda as to what to do in order to pursue justice. So again, the standard needs to be questioned. Says who? By what standard can you show me from God's word what justice looks like and who the oppressed actually are? Well, for more than 150 years, Karl, or Marxism has been offering answers to those questions. First, it was done by Karl Marx in terms of economics, and then more recently in terms of his disciples, in terms of cultural, or, of cultural Marxism or sociology. This latter neocultural Marxism has been the dominant influence in the academy and politics in helping to shape our understanding of oppression in society for at least the last 40 years. Joe Carter of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission recently published an article at the Gospel Coalition entitled, Kenism, Marxism, and the Synagogue Shooter, referring to the man who went in and tried to massacre many, only was able to kill one a week or two ago in California. In that article, and some later exchanges that I had with Carter, he says that the term cultural Marxism is racist jargon that originated from a racist worldview perpetuated by anti-Semites. And he and I had a brief exchange on social media. And in that exchange, he said, the use of cultural Marxism is, quote, a racist and anti-Semitic dog whistle that should be abandoned by Christians. And he then urged me to quit using that term lest I be one of them. Well, obviously, I've not acquiesced to his request. Because I believe there remains a helpful way of understanding the play that is being made against the culture here in the West and increasingly against many evangelical and reformed churches and organizations. Al Mohler helps us understand why Joe Carter and others like him object to the use of the term. As just a few months ago, Mohler explained how widespread this ideology of cultural Marxism is in the academy. He writes in November, Many on the left are saying that cultural Marxism is the boogeyman of the right. This is Al Mohler's words. That it's an invented position amongst conservatives. But that is not so. What is driving the left is indeed nothing less than a form of cultural Marxism. That's not an anti-Semite speaking. That's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He said this cultural Marxism that has been taught on college and university campuses for a long time and is now the lingua franca, the common language of the university. It's the symbolic universe in which the younger progressives live. Cultural Marxism is an adaptation of economic Marxism, moving it from an economic theory to a cultural social theory. Classical Marxism saw class conflict between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, the haves and the have-nots. Cultural Marxism views such conflict as between the oppressed and the oppressors, between those with privilege and those without it. The working class has been replaced by minorities. Majority groups are defined as privileged and oppressive. Minority groups are regarded as underprivileged and depressed. Now here's what this means practically in the way that it works out in this ideological framework. 
that white, male, heterosexual, cisgendered, that is you agree with the sex with which you were born, able-bodied, are all majority groups and therefore inherently oppressive. Those who belong to those groups, that group, are the dominant culture and they wield hegemonic power against subdominant cultures. Hegemony is a Greek word that means simply to have dominance over. So those who fit into those categories, they've been positioned in the place of oppressors. And they are able to oppress because of their power. Those who do not fit into such groups are subdominant minorities. By definition, in the cultural Marxist scheme, they're oppressed. Those in the dominant class culture exert their hegemonic power over minorities by manipulating them, oftentimes unwittingly, inadvertently, but they do so to accept their own cultural assumptions, mores, and values. So, this is how the charge of white supremacy is made to stick to heterosexual, male, able-bodied, cisgendered people. Even if you have never entertained personal animus toward other races, you, you say, well, I'm not a racist. And they say, well, no, you are. You're a white supremacist. I don't have those attitudes. I deplore those attitudes. When you respond that way, it's like they say, oh, it's worse than you know. <laughs> you have inward oppression and bias that you're just completely unaware of. Let us teach you. Let us teach you. And they want to get you on their ground. And when they get you on their ground, if you let them go there, it's over. It's over. This way of viewing the world has given rise to a philosophical movement or ideology known as critical theory. Critical theory is a social theory oriented toward critiquing and changing society as a whole in contrast to traditional social theory which is oriented only to understanding or explaining the world. The agenda of critical theory is to see the overthrow of oppressive groups and the deconstruction of those structures that enable them to wield their hegemonic power. And this is advocated all in the name of love and compassion for the oppressed. This ideology is on full display right now in our political system throughout our nation. Just go watch a few things that Alexandria Ortez, Ocasio-Cortez says. Just listen to her. I mean, this is her worldview. If you understand the worldview and you listen to what she says, you can say, okay, there's internal logic to it. It's just nuts. It's unbiblical. We also see this ideology on display in the college and university campuses across our land, our, our land as well. If you don't know about the story, Google Professor Brett Weinstein, Evergreen State University, and just read and listen. This worldview is seen in everything from the innocent-sounding diversity departments that are springing up across our nation to the violent silencing of those heretics who dare to question its orthodoxy. You can see how problematic it is if it is allowed to define who the oppressed are and what constitutes seeking justice for them. 
Yeah, that's precisely what is happening across the land politically and educationally. It has begun to make inroads into the evangelical world. Neil Shinvey is a theoretical chemist from Berkeley who did postdoc work at Yale and Duke and today <clears throat> is a homeschooling father in North Carolina. He has done some of the best work in explaining critical theory of anything that I've read. I encourage you to go to his website. It's Shinvi, S-H-E-N-V-I, apologetics.com. And he's taken massive amounts of research and distilled it into very bite-sized pieces that we can ingest. He takes his studies of critical theory, and he says that there's seven basic principles that he's identified. I want to just zero in on three of them tonight that I think are particularly problematic for those of us who are determined not to be taken captive, who are determined to stand firm on the authority of God's word committed to the ways of Christ. The first is this, in critical theory, a foundational principle is this. Your fundamental identity is not who you are as an individual, but, who the, but the group to which you belong. Your fundamental identity is not who you are as an individual, but what group do you belong to? What matters most is whether you're a part of the privileged, dominant, oppressor group or a subdominant, oppressed group. And this is how you can be racist, misogynistic, homophobic, even though you personally abhor all of those attitudes and refuse to give any countenance to them. If you're a part of the white, heterosexual, cisgendered, male hegemony, then you're guilty of systemic oppression. That's just the way this worldview works. A second principle. Your fundamental moral duty is to work for the liberation of oppressed groups. This is what it means to do justice. So if you're not undertaking in behalf of the oppressed, as defined by critical theory, then you're complicit in their ongoing oppression. A third principle is this. Lived experience, what I've experienced in my life, lived experience is more important than objective evidence and reason in understanding oppression. In fact, this standpoint epistemology argues that using objective evidence and reason is actually exerting hegemonic power over those in subdominant cultures, and that in itself it is oppression. So what Dr. Malone did in the first message would be seen to be incredibly oppressive, because he just took us to the word, and he said, this is what the word says. And the critical theorists would say, there you go again, and you need to take into consideration somebody whose life experience is different than you that sees things differently because of that life experience. This understanding <clears throat> is what causes so many who are moving in these circles, advocating these ideologies, to tell people in the hegemony that what they must do is sit down and be quiet and listen. Because there are folks with different lived experiences that have things to teach them concerning Christianity. I want to give you just a few examples from the evangelical world about justice issues that speak in ways that betray the influence of critical theory on their thinking. And I don't do this with any malice. And I'm not accusing people I'm going to be citing of being cultural Marxist or intentionally doing these things. I'm just trying to show how you can hear in the way they frame their arguments 
the influence of these ideologies I've just described. Timothy Isaiah Cho is a graduate of Westminster Theological Seminary, contributor to the White Horse Inn. He is involved in core Christianity, which is designed to teach the basics of Christianity. He writes, The Bible is written from the lens of the marginalized. If you come from a group or community that is historically not marginalized, you need these voices and perspectives or else your understanding of the word, the gospel, and the Christian life will be thin and weak. Lived experience trumps careful hermeneutics. He goes on. If the references in your pastor's sermons, the books used in small groups, the resources passed between the laity, the music sung in worship, and even the reflection quotes in your worship bulletins are predominantly by white men, your church is promoting a truncated Christianity. How can he say that? Because he's coming from a worldview that indicates there's something more important than the truth that might, even if accidentally, be stated by those people. Last year, at the annual Evangelical Theological Society meeting, Andy Draycott, who's an associate professor of theology and Christian ethics at Talbot School, the School of Theology at Biola, presented a paper with this title, Walking Across Gender in the Spirit, question mark, The Vocation of the Church and the Transgender Christian. In the paper... He asked this question, should we consider transgender Christians as having a good self-understanding? And he answers the question with an unqualified, of course. He uses different analogies to make his case, including the ordinance of baptism. Using it as a way to help us think about transgendered Christians, as he calls them. They've died to their old identity. They've been raised a new identity. This is a theology professor at a Christian campus that we've regarded as conservative for most of its history. The pushback against this paper was so strong after the ETS meeting that Draycott had to issue a statement of apology for, quote, lack of clarity. (laughs) I, I read the paper. It was plenty clear. That was the problem. His... Statement of apology basically contradicts what the paper actually says, in my estimation. In the weeks leading up to the most recent Mother's Day, some evangelical women announced that they would be preaching in their churches that Sunday. The most prominent of those women was Beth Moore. In the inevitable controversy that erupted, the language defending Mrs. Moore, including her own, and other women preachers, including accusations of sexism, misogynistic oppression, and the need for women to be liberated from such oppression. Again, where does that come from? I'm not accusing anybody of being a cultural Marxist. I'm just saying, this is, these are categories. These are words. These are ideas that have been imported from these worldviews. What I am saying is that the influence of the worldview that I've just described is apparent in what such people are advocating and how they are contending for what they believe to be justice. And these kinds of examples, trust me, can be multiplied many times over. My main concern is not to do that, but rather to demonstrate that this is happening and to sound the alarm that as it is happening, we must recognize it and realize that these things are not according to Christ. Christ. 
And if they're not according to Christ, we must not let ourselves be taken captive by them. You cannot buy into the worldview of cultural Marxism or critical theory and maintain a commitment to the Bible as the word of God written. Christ has given us his word. It is authoritative, sufficient, and final. It teaches us that God is the creator of this world. He has ordered it, and he has done so in various ways, including ways of hierarchies in relationships and distinctions between people. He made men stronger than women, and adults, for the most part, have more maturity than children. (laughs) He created human sexuality to be binary. He made them male and female on purpose. He providentially orders the times and places of our existence. He's the one who says plainly in his word that the office and function of elders is to be restricted to qualified men. He alone is righteous. He's revealed his righteousness to us in the moral law. Sin is any transgression of or lack of conformity to that law. To live justly is to live lawfully. Injustice is failure to live lawfully. In other words, this is God's world. And he gets to set the rules. He gets to tell us what's right, wrong, good, bad, beautiful, and ugly. And when somebody comes in and says, oh, but listen... I've lived a different life. I haven't been part of the privilege. Let me tell you that this is what you ought to think. And this is what you ought to think. You know what we ought to say to them? Go pound sand. (laughs) Show me from the word of God. Don't tell me what I got to see, what I got to believe because of some experience somewhere. I want to honor you and your experience. But don't tell me ought or should unless you've got thus saith the Lord somewhere in the mix. God has told us how to live well in his world. To do so, we must live in keeping with his design. Our fundamental problem is that we have shattered his design by our own rebellion against him. We do not have the righteousness that he requires. We cannot afford to pay the penalty that our sin has incurred. Our only hope is his sovereign grace. Our only hope is that grace that is exclusively revealed in Jesus Christ. If we're going to be reconciled to God, we must do so on his terms. What he says, according to what he has revealed. That is, we must come to him by turning from sin, renouncing self, trusting Christ as Lord, bowing to him, receiving the righteousness that he earned, taking by grace the payment he made for our sin. We must submit to what God says. And by faith in Christ, commit ourselves to his ways. Our world is a spiritually dangerous place. It has always been so from the time of the fall of our first parents. The dangers facing us today are particularly insidious because of the subtlety with which they have entered into our ways of thinking and viewing the world. So, brothers and sisters, let's face these days with boldness and confidence. The boldness and confidence of Martin Luther... As we sing his hymn, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him.
that word above all earthly powers. No thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go this mortal life, O soul. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the assurance we have by your spirit of the truth, the power, the authority, the sufficiency, the finality of that word. Make us people of one book. Give us such devotion and confidence in your word that we will be so satisfied in Christ that nothing can move us off of him, nothing can take us captive. Help us to be full of hope as we confront the challenges of these days. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.